Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. My name is Frauke Junkut. I'm the practice manager for agriculture and food in the Europe and Central Asia region of the World Bank. I'm the moderator of today's session. It's a pleasure to welcome all of you today to this webinar on food policy research and capacity building development in Eurasia. It will present recent policy research and case study findings resulting from the collaboration of the Eurasia Center for Food Security, IFPRI and the World Bank. I would also like to thank IFPRI um, for hosting this event. We have a packed agenda and therefore with, without further ado, um, let us move to our opening remarks for this webinar. Our first speaker is Professor Schober. Professor Schober is the director of the Eurasia Center for Food Security of the Lomonosov Moscow State University. He's also a corresponding member of the Russian Academy of Science and the president of the Soil Science Department of Moscow University. Professor Schober, the floor is yours. Thank you very much. Uh, dear colleagues and the participant of webinar, uh, welcome to our joint event organized by the World Bank, International Food Policy Research Institute and Eurasian Center of Food Security. This is uh, the third joint webinar that we are held during the last two months. Despite the pandemic, number of our events increased, however, in distant format. Uh, today, there are two important issues to discuss. First, we are going to share our views on the experience and the result of case study approaches. Such approach is very useful to address relevant food policy and food security issues. We consider case studies as an important area in our activity which contributes original knowledge, research collaboration, and development of evidence-based policy to improve food and nutrition security in the region. Since 1916, the World Bank and the Eurasian Center have published 22 cases. Additional seven studies were conducted this year. These studies cover different topics of food policy simply of COVID-19 crisis, such as improving nutrition of urban population, providing school meals, uh, inclusion of small farmers in marketing systems, strengthening food value chains, optimizing foreign trained regulation during the pandemic. The analytical and educational results of these studies correspondent to modern requirements and uh, best world practice. Second, we are here to discuss the result of joint IFRI and Eurasian Center policy re research of pandem pandemic impact on households and food system in Eurasia. Declining economic activity, reducing oil prices, devaluating national currencies, uh, disrupting food value chains, uh, led a uh, deterioration in the Eurasian economies. The World Bank predicts a decline of the global economy uh, by more than 5%. Many countries of the Eurasian region experience
Professor Schober, you are muted. Sorry, please check. Professor Schuber, yeah. Excuse yes. me. Perfect. Uh, Thank I lost, you. I lost that. Uh, as well as significant social and political shock. I believe that research and development collaboration is important for strengthening food and nutrition security in the Eurasia. That is why the Eurasia Center and IFRI are going to strengthen policy research and contribute to implementing evidence-based policies for agricultural transformation and inclusive food system development. In this regard, during the next stage of our collaboration, we will focus on assessing the impact of national agricultural policies uh, on food security, evaluating the potential impact of innovative technologies on agricultural productivity, and developing recommendations to expand agri-food trade. In general, I think we were successful in re uh, reaching a good level of mutual, mutual understanding and interaction. In this important, uh, it is important not to slow down the pace of collaboration and ensure the relevance uh, and timelines of the outcomes of our joint research. I am sure that today, during the discussion, promising ideas will be expressed for implementation in the Eurasian region. I wish all of us a fruitful and interesting discussion. Thank you for your attention. Thank you very much, Professor Schober. We have a second opening remark from um, Renaud Seligman. Renaud is the country director and resident representative in the um, Russian Federation. Renaud, over to you. Thank you very much, uh, Frauke. Uh, dear Professor, uh, dear colleagues, uh, very nice to see you all um, today. Um, uh, you know, the, the Eurasian Center for Food Security uh, is really an important part uh, of the Russian Federation's contribution to regional and global food security. As a think tank, it was established uh, not as a result of this current crisis, but in a way as a result of the previous uh, major crisis of 2008-2009, when uh, you know, following the, the major financial crisis, there were a lot of issues to do with food security. And there was a major food and fuel prices hike, which led to uh, many developing countries being uh, under stress. Now, today, the world faces different challenges. Um, certainly, global food security challenges are affected by long-term trends, by climate change, population growth, changes in nutrition patterns, migration, urbanization, all of that is going on as we speak. Um, world food production continues to grow. And in fact, this year is likely to be a record year in terms of production. But at the same time, this is not enough to ensure food security for all. Food production that is unaffordable, food production that is subject to trade barriers, food production that does not reach the last mile or that does not reach children in schools, is not food production 
that leads to food security. And so on top of that comes the COVID-19 pandemic, a major shock to the world system, a major shock to the food system as well. And it shows that the intersection of people, animals, and the environment uh, is really at the core of our global security. So to prevent the next pandemic, among other things, one must do for the global community is to better understand the links between food production and its environment, to better understand and design food and agri agricultural policies that can prevent such disasters from occurring again. So there's no question that the work of the uh, Eurasian Center for Food Security, uh, the World Bank and IFPRI is extremely relevant. It's an important part of our collaboration with the Russian Federation and it has particular relevance in the Eurasian region. Why? Because with the transition to a new market economy, investments in agricultural research and development in the region have been limited. And there is not so much up-to-date net knowledge out there on food security-related topics that are absolutely critical for these countries to do well. Knowledge on agricultural production, on planning, on knowledge and capacity uh, related to new technologies, on post-harvest processing. Uh, all of this is lagging compared to other regions of the world. And so the excellent research of uh, organizations uh, uh, of the consultative group of international agricultural research uh, have unfortunately had too little uh, reach and engagement in this region. So um, the Russian assistance to food security and food policy uh, capacity building is filling an important gap. Uh, and our collaboration with uh, the Eurasian Center is uh, therefore uh, something that we are very proud of and we would like to deepen and develop over time. The ECFS has served as a, as a unique regional and international platform for food security. It could do even more to reach out to Africa and other parts of the world where there is uh, also a need for collaboration and exchange uh, and also to connect uh, with uh, uh, other aspects uh, uh, of research on, on One Health um, and the links between veterinary, animal, and human health. Um, so we look forward to continuous engagement with both the Russian Federation, all the partners present, represented today, uh, and uh, the Eurasian Center uh, to build further capacity, to develop knowledge, to share knowledge, uh, and to build a sustainable future uh, for food uh, systems. Um, I would like to really thank um, IFPRI for hosting this event and a special thanks to um, Joe Swinnen for his long-term partnership with ECFS, which actually predates uh, um, um, his uh, role as Director General of IPRI. So we certainly appreciate uh, Dr. Swinnen's uh, close engagement as well as that of his colleagues, uh, Mr. Akramov, Mr. Babu, Mr. Ilyasov and many others. Uh, let me also uh, um, uh, thank uh, Artavas and the team for, for uh, their uh, excellent efforts to prepare for this event. And with that, uh, uh, I thank you very much for your attention. Back to you, Frauke. Thank you very much, Renaud. Um, our next opening speaker is uh, Steven Schoenberger. Steven is the Regional Director for Sustainable Development of the um, Europe and Central Asia region. 
Sustainable development in this case uh, covers agriculture, water, environment, social, land, urban, disaster, um, and you know, also touches on climate. So it's a broad agenda. Stephen, over to you. Thank you, Frauke. And uh, listen, first of all, I'd like to echo Renaud's uh, thanks to our colleagues at IFPRI and to Joe Swinnon for hosting this event. And of course, for the great partnership between the, the Eurasian Center, the World Bank and IFPRI uh, over the last few years. Uh, IFPRI and the World Bank have been working closely in the Eurasia region on supporting food security and food policy capacity uh, for several years. Uh, it's clearly a region that remains vulnerable to food crises given the, the climatic, geographic and economic factors. And as Renault was highlighting, this initiative really came out of the food crisis in 2008, 2009, a time when I had the opportunity at the World Bank to work closely with uh, Ban Ki-moon's office and IFPRI and others and uh, David Navarro in, in, in developing the response to that crisis across all the different agencies. Uh, but you know, it was particularly a strong response in the context of Eurasia. And uh, the work together with IFPRI, with the Eurasian Center has really been about better equipping uh, governments and the societies in the Eurasian region to respond to these types of, of crises and to prepare for them so that they don't have the kind of uh, unfortunate impacts in terms of poverty and, and hardship that we saw in 2008, 2009. So what have we learned over the last uh, 10 years? Uh, probably the most important lesson is that we have to think beyond agricultural production. We have to think beyond supply chains and we have to think beyond diets to adopt a food systems approach. And this means looking at how the use of natural resources, labor, technology and capital are deployed to meet the challenges of universal access to healthy nutrition while ensuring environmental sustainability. And it's institutions like IFPRI and the Eurasian Center for Food Security, whom we look to to provide the thinking and analysis of how these different elements of the food security challenge come together towards this important objective and where we can and must do better. Uh, this can vary from greater use of climate smart agricultural techniques, uh, realizing the potential of innovations like vertical farming, uh, using blockchain and other digital traceability innovations to ensure food safety and limit food waste, and focusing on issues of diets and packaging at the consumer level. It's a complex agenda, but we really don't have any choice but to embrace it if we're going to achieve the sustainable development goals. Now, of course, we're facing another crisis, COVID-19, which while not a crisis of food availability per se, has nonetheless highlighted the vulnerabilities of the overall food system, given the clearly observable impacts on local food production and availability as well as, of course, the, the dramatic impacts on income and employment opportunities, including on farm and restaurants and in other parts of the food chain. In Europe and Central Asia, some initial actions include, included broad trade and other uh, uh, responses, uh, protective measures, but countries generally were able to refocus their public responses to more directly address the specific impacts of the COVID crisis on food availability with vulnerable groups. Over the course of the crisis, the World Bank Group has moved rapidly to deploy its full financial capacity, and we're on track to commit a record $160 billion over 15 months to support 112 countries so far. The bank is also making up to $12 billion of fast-track financing available to client countries for them to choose, purchase, and deploy COVID-19 vaccines as these become available. 
However, the question we all face now is how will countries and industries build back better from the crisis? Uh, the World Bank's president, David Malpass, during the recent annual meetings in October, talked about reversing the inequality pandemic by fostering an inclusive and resilient recovery. Touching specifically on food security, President Malpass highlighted the necessity of putting food systems on a more healthy, sustainable, and prosperous track. With millions of people facing overlapping crises from the pandemic, economic collapse, the desert locust outbreak, particularly in uh, the Horn of Africa, climate shocks and conflict, international cooperation is more needed now than ever. Uh, the World Bank recognizes that given the interdependency of food systems across stakeholders and national boundaries, regional organizations such as ECFS play a critical role in guiding and supporting the Build Back Better agenda. Uh, we're pleased to partner with the Russian Federation in its efforts to strengthen regional capacity building for food policy and food security. We also would like to emphasize the high value and importance of working closely with the CGIAR institutions. And we're happy to see IFPRI taking a leading role in this collaboration for their Eurasian, Eurasian food policy and food security agenda. I certainly look forward to the presentations in this webinar and to learn more about the work that ECFS has been supporting working closely with IFPRI. So with that, thank you so much for this opportunity to join. And I'll hand it back over to Frauke. Thanks a lot, Stephen. Um, our next remarks are coming from Johan Swinnen. Um, um, he's the Director General of IFPRI. Um, since um, January 2020, he's also a member of the Champions 12.3 Leadership Group uh, to reduce food loss and waste of the SDG targets and also serves as the Commissioner of the Food System Economics Commission. Um, prior to um, IFPRI, um, Dr. Swinnen um, was a professor um, in the um, University of Leuven in Belgium. Um, Joe, over to you. Thank you very much, Frauke. And uh, at some point, and this is longer ago, I was your colleague in the, uh, in, in the what was then called ECSSD uh, department in the World Bank, where I, I really enjoyed working together with inside the World Bank with colleagues from there. So I'm extremely pleased to be here to say a few words at the introduction of this uh, um, of this event. I very much want to thank Dr. Seligman and Dr. Schoenberger and Dr. Shoba for their very warm welcome. Uh, I want to uh, say the same thing to the Eurasian Center and to the World Bank. I also very much want to thank Artavas Hakobian for many years of collaboration uh, with him. For myself personally and for IFPRI as an institution, this is a very important collaboration and we are very much appreciating this joint effort uh, in the region and beyond. Uh, I personally looked forward very much to the event because I, as uh, was mentioned already, I had been collaborating with ESAFS for years before I uh, joined IFPRI here, but this time in my new capacity, it would be special and I look forward to next year to being sure to be there in person and to have more time to interact. These are, these are unusual times, as I'm sure you know, as the previous speakers have also said. Um, as part of the global community, the Central Asian countries are facing unprecedented challenges, the combination of COVID-19 with global warming, with unstable commodity markets, disruptions of trade flow, disruptions of remittances, etc., all have impacted the region. And this is particularly uh, important because, or special, because the 
food and the health and the economic systems today are much more complex than they were a couple of decades ago. And Central Asia is strongly connected between the countries in the region in terms of trades and, and market integration. And so the breakdown of supply chains has had many different impacts, both in terms of internal uh, trade within a country and, and cross-border trade. We know now from global research and also research in the region, that's particularly the poor who are suffering most from this. And this is due to a combination of reasons. One is because poor typically are integrated in more labor-intensive uh, value chains, food systems, which are more hurt by the, both by the virus and by the, the basically the policy reactions to the virus. And also because of the fall in economic growth, okay, which has really uh, disproportionately affected poor people. Uh, due to the economic recessions, fallen remittances, etc. So in this environment, I think our work, our joint work in terms of strengthening the research capacity, the analytical capacity is even more important than it was in, in the past. Um, in recent years, so we have, as was already mentioned, our, our joint work has been supported by the Russian Federation. It has been implemented jointly by the World Bank, if we and the Eurasian Center at Lomonosov, Moscow State University. And this has led, I think, to strengthening both of the individual research capacity and the institutional research capacity. And we definitely want to continue that in the future. Uh, at this point, the joint research effort is very much focused on measuring the impact on, uh, of COVID-19 and coming up with evidence-based policy recommendations to make things better. Um, the, the research um, uses a number of different ways of analyzing both models, uh, data collection, secondary data from government sources, new survey methods to collect data. And so measuring impacts on trade, food security, but also on household welfare, dietary uh, combinations in terms of nutrition, et cetera. There's some interesting results that will be presented later in the panel related to remittances flow. And so the impact is, is important for the poor, but seems to differ quite significantly between countries, some countries having almost as much an impact as the, was the case in the financial crisis in 2015, uh, the Russian financial crisis, and in other cases, they are more resilient. There's also important impacts on incomes. And in terms of production, there's some interesting switches moving from cash crops to uh, staple production, uh, often in smallholder production systems. Um, maybe the last point there is that, that if we, we have developed globally a policy response portal where we collect information on policy responses from many countries, and we are doing the same thing in uh, Russia, for Russia, Armenia, and several Central Asian countries as part of our joint collaboration here. And this allows us both to measure these responses, but also to see what the impact is and to draw implications of that. I'm going to end here uh, because there's many other presentations coming up. I just want to end by, I say, I look forward to the presentations to get more details on these things. And IFPRI is definitely committed to continue this collaboration. And also, it was referred to Elko as part of the new CGIR reforms, which are currently take place and, and leading the efforts within the one CGIR of the future. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Joe. And thanks all for the opening remarks. Let's now move to our first round of presentations, which are picking up of what Joe was just saying on the, um, one of the approaches used um, by the collaboration, which is the case study approach to food policy capacity development in Eurasia. Our first presenter is Artavas Hakobian. Artavas is a senior agriculture economist at the 
Europe and Central Asia Agriculture and Food Practice Group under the Sustainable Development Umbrella. Artavas, the floor is yours. Thank you very much, Frauke, and uh, thank you very much to all previous uh, speakers for the great encouragement and introduction of the Eurasian Food Policy Program that the World Bank, IFPRI, and ECFS are jointly uh, supporting. Um, next slide, please. Uh, before I start uh, to discuss uh, the, uh, the topic of my presentation, food policy relevant case studies, I would like to re-emphasize uh, the role of the Eurasian Center for Food Security. It is, in a nutshell, a regional think tank of, for food policy and food security research based in Lomonosov Moscow State University. Um, and uh, as previous speakers uh, mentioned, it is supported by the World Bank and IFPRI and um, uh, CGIR institutes, uh, as well as it is financed by the Russian Ministry of Finance as part of the International Development Assistance Program of the Russian Federation. ECFS um, focuses on the intersection of um, food security, soil science, natural resources and agricultural policies and promotes relevant knowledge in the Eurasian region and beyond. Its main stakeholders are researchers and policymakers in the Eurasian region. Next slide, please. Uh, previous slide, please. Um, in this context, um, food policy a relevant case study approach is uniquely designed to bring together ECFS's core objectives and promote food policy and food security capacity building in the region. The Eurasian region is not covered as much with investments in agricultural research and development programs. And as has been mentioned already, just for the comparison purposes, CGIR research funding globally is around 900 million million dollars per year, of which only 6 million is focused or dedicated uh, to the Eurasian region. At the same time, the region is vulnerable to food crisis due to climate change, socioeconomic and geographic challenges. While food security has been improved in Eurasia since the collapse of the Soviet Union and, the, and the, at the process of transition to the new market economy, there are challenges in terms of various forms of malnutrition, obesity, anemia, and others. Uh, the analytical and research capacity in the region has been improving and has improved significantly. But overall, there has been comparably lower level of research in food security and food policy related issues. These shortcomings are reflected in the way the food policy is implemented in the regional countries. The food policy design and implementation is predominantly based on ad hoc capacities of the governments and at times on recommendations of external experts funded through donor programs. There is lack of reliable analytical and local knowledge that can guide a more structured policy process. Next slide, please. So how did we approach to capacity building and knowledge generation in food policy and food security? First, we conducted a regional prioritization exercise that identified policy research priorities for the region. Then we promoted policy knowledge exchange and educational initiatives targeting food policy practitioners. 
Thirdly, we supported various research initiatives to generate new knowledge and to train food policy researchers in new methods. And last but not least, we facilitated partnerships and collaboration between various universities and research centers in the region and globally. Next slide, please. Food policy relevant case method is one of the knowledge activities or products that we help to design and promote. The case studies are based on a dual objective, rapid policy analysis and teaching material for policy students. The cases select a single specific real life and relevant topic. And in that context, they may not um, immediately be suitable for a broad policy advice, but can be suitable to analyze the stakeholder dynamics, uh, positions of various interest groups, and their pressures on policy making process. The cases also embed a structured process of identifying policy options for decision makers. The method is a brainchild of Per Pinstrup-Anderson, whom many of you know. The educational benefit of the cases is to simulate a real life situation in a classroom setting and to allow students to identify and evaluate various policy options. Next slide, please. To date, um, as already has been mentioned, we have developed 29 case studies with participation of 60 authors from various Eurasian universities. We conducted five phases of calls for proposals. Each phase had a distinct and relevant topic. This year's topic, for example, was the impact of COVID-19 on food security. We established a highly qualified review committee and a structured, robust peer review process. Case authors have been invited to participate in training programs, which included capacity building for writing the cases, as well as for the use of case approach for food policy teaching. Many authors who are practitioners, such as professors, lecturers, researchers, have introduced the case method in their curricula in their home universities. Next slide. Thank you very much for your attention. Over to you, Frauke. Thanks a lot, Artevas. Um, our next speaker um, is Dr. Daryl Watson. He is Associate Professor and Department Head at Towson State University. And um, he has um, his research is on political economy, food policy, and effective teaching methods. And he's also serves as a senior editor for the Journal on Food Security and as a chair of the Department of Accounting, Finance and Economics at Taunton State University. Um, Daryl will speak about the experience in teaching this case study method in, in the US and um, or in Eurasia under this the collaboration. Daryl, the floor is yours. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. In terms of capacity building, one of the important things that needs to be done is to raise another generation of leaders and policy analysts who will engage in policy and make a real difference in, in the food security problems that we face. As Artifast has said, uh, therefore ECFS and, and um, have created these case studies in part to improve teaching in Eurasia and throughout the world as has been well established for decades. Next slide, please. As has been well established for decades, 
the standard lecture method is simply not very effective. If I approach my teaching from saying, what am I going to do today? Students are going to forget most of what I'm trying to teach them. Next slide, please. However, when I focus my efforts on what will my students do today, that changes the entire paradigm of how I'm going about my teaching. What is it they are going to study? What is it they are going to practice? How are they going to teach each other? What are they actually going to do? Case studies are remarkably well-suited to move the class towards a learner-focused center. They are active as, as opposed to being passive. This act of learning makes a real difference in how students see themselves as agents for change in, in working through problems. This is the idea of the social entrepreneurship method that uh, Pierre Pinster-Panderson believed in so much. Next slide, please. The hope that he has is that students will begin to see themselves as problem solvers who are dealing with complex solutions for the complex social problems facing their countries and in particular with food security. They take students out of the nebulous theory that we, we researchers enjoy into real world. It is inherently multidisciplinary so that students have to grapple with science and plant breeding. They have to deal with economics. They have to deal with policy and look at these issues from the standpoint of multiple stakeholders. This enables them to understand both why the system has become what it is, but also where the most likely uh, opportunities for change are. These cases that um, that have been assembled uh, both both through peer of my work and through the ECFS work uh, are being used throughout the world. I know of, of teachers throughout the U.S. and California, Texas and Colorado and New York. I know of people in Denmark and Finland, in Nigeria, Ethiopia and South Africa, in India and China, and of course throughout the Eurasian region. Next slide, please. The, I have a few examples of, uh, of a few cases that I particularly enjoy on the left that have been created through between 2016 and 2018. You will see that each of the countries are well represented that, uh, and they touch on a wide variety of issues, environmental sustainability, uh, livestock, many different types of crops are covered. Political economy is specifically developed. This year, we've mentioned that there are seven new cases coming out. You see three of them here, uh, where we're taking a very specific detailed look on how, in some cases, what new challenges COVID has created, and in some cases, how old challenges have changed or been exacerbated by the problems of food security and the policies that we have, uh, that we've all been enacting to try to deal with it. Next slide, please. Therefore, to help ensure that these cases get a wider, uh, get wider play and to improve teaching throughout the Eurasian region. ECFS and the World Bank partnered, uh, partnered together to create a train the teacher course that was held for the first time this January. Uh, I, I had the privilege to work with 15 uh, lecturers from across the, across the region to work on teaching and how to use case studies in our teaching. I have to say it was a wonderful and uh, experience for all of us. We all gained together and came back with a greater capacity 
for helping our students and making a difference in the region. In fact, the second year's training starts next week and I'm looking forward to it very much. Thank you, Spasiba. Thank you very much, Daryl. Um, let's move to our next speaker, Dr. Suresh Babu. He is a senior research fellow and head of capacity strengthening at IFPRI. Dr. Babu leads the IFPRI programs on learning capacity strengthening and has been involved in institutional and human capacity strengthening for higher education and research in many countries in South Asia, Central Asia, Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, you know, we'll stop there. Um, and he will talk to us about the role of case study methods um, um, in food policy capacity building activities. Dr. Babu, the floor is yours. Thank you, Fraka. Um, let me start by uh, saying that uh, um, that I'm thankful for the opportunity and also for being part of this large effort of ECF, SF, World Bank, uh, IFPRI from its beginning. Um, and um, I was also part of uh, developing some, uh, working with the uh, development of the case study approach uh, in, in the program. So I will talk a little bit about Atravas and, and, and Daryl talked about uh, the, the, what we have done so far. I will talk about what we can do with the case studies in order to reach out to the larger policy systems in the, in the, in the countries. And I will give some examples. I will also go back how we developed this program and how it is becoming more relevant, as Daryl said, in terms of uh, taking the case study approach to the policy making. Uh, it's not just in the policy process, but we can actually use in terms of uh, um, guiding policies uh, using evidence and, and, and knowledge gap, filling the knowledge gaps. Next slide, please. We all know that uh, this case study approach have been there for a while with business schools and, and public policy schools. They also bring out the best practices in research and carnal food policy case studies as the first set of case studies that I know of organized very well. Daryl was part of that with Fair Prince of Anderson, which used this social entrepreneurship approach to food policy analysis. And I will give some examples now of how we are using it from IFPRI's uh, perspective and how we are taking it to the policy. And we are learning from the case study approach that is being done in ECFS as well. So there is a cross learning, south-south learning happening because of our involvement with, with ECFS. Next slide, please. Uh, the case study approach itself uh, uh, is a very collaborative approach of, of the organizations, as we talked about, and a lot of policy communication events happening, and you saw the examples from, from Daryl, and these are all very important in terms of building capacity at the country level. It's not just give a case study to people and they go and do it, but the capacity strengthening of training of the case study writers, as well as the researchers, go hand in hand. But how to link policy research that they do to the policy that, that we do in ECFS and World Bank and, and, and IFPRI, to the policy analysis that has to happen for informing policies is uh, happening through this case study approach. I want to emphasize that, that translation of the larger research program into action on the ground uh, can happen through the case study approach because we can go into detail, context-specific, local uh, context-specific at the country level. So this is also cross-country learning, as I said, and, and also identify emerging policy issues as this year's set of policy studies, policy case studies, focus on COVID-19, for example, right? So, and how to fill the knowledge gaps and, and, and build capacity of the local, and also the credibility of the local researchers, very, very important. Once they work with us, we elevate them in the policy system a little bit, through our working, through building capacity so that they can debate and dialogue better in their own systems. So that is very important as, uh, as they become authors of the case studies. Next slide, please. 
uh, we talked about this. Uh, Daryl talked about it, and he, he was working with Principal Anderson for a series of case studies. We also contributed from IFPRI and and several, even in the original uh, uh, documentation, there were several Central Asian case studies were there. So I want to just point out that that uh, the contribution of this food policy uh, case studies from Cornell has been a starting point for uh, several teaching materials that are being used, as Daryl said, and it is in open source. And it's uh, it's very important that we make it available to people to adopt it. Next, next, please. Slide, please. And we are uh, we have used it in American University in Washington, uh, D.C. for a master's program in rural development program, uh, very effectively at the postgraduate level where mid-career professionals come and do this uh, course. And they are quickly able to adopt this case study method and, and develop the country level expertise and, and, and also take it to the jobs that they go and do. So it's, it's an enormous amount of impact that we can make through uh, the case study approach as well. I'm just uh, pointing it out that it is, it is expanding in its reach and also in the, in the programs that we are teaching throughout the world. Next slide, please. And we are also using it, the IFPRI University of Maryland uh, course on food policy analysis. The students come from multidisciplinary uh, subjects and they are actually using uh, the cases, they develop the cases as well, as well as use the cases that we have developed, uh, including the ECFS cases uh, that we have developed. And we have been doing this in the past 20 years, but in the last five years, the case study approach has become very, very important. Next slide, please. And I just want to throw in uh, uh, Per Principe Anderson's uh, uh, starting point at ECFS when we were all together in Moscow State University, where we introduced that uh, the approach to all of us. And, and um, as for one uh, mentored by him for many years, uh, benefited a lot directly working with him on this case study approaches. And what is important is connecting the case studies to the evidence and policy making that he keeps emphasizing. And it's not just writing case and, and keeping it on the shelf, but how do we take this further one step to policy dialogue and debate in the country level is very important. Next slide, please. Of course, uh, I, I was also part of selecting the cases and, 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 and going through this for several rounds in ECFS uh, case study proposals. Uh, what tells me is that, that the wide range of uh, uh, subjects are being dealt with that are highly relevant for uh, policy making at the country level. And of course, this year, uh, COVID-19 is highly relevant for what we, we should be uh, doing there. So uh, it, it's overall giving us a broad food systems perspective, and it's not just production oriented or market oriented, a wide range of issues being addressed in this case studies. Next slide, please. Point I want to make in this presentation is in the short run, we should be thinking about uh, how we can work in the national policy systems to use these case studies effectively to lead and uh, to, to policy dialogue and debate. And, and that requires uh, uh, refining the case studies, updating these case studies as we go along for the, for the relevance to the emerging policy issues in this country. So there's something we need to think about. Uh, but in the long run, we already have made progress in this in terms of introducing this in curriculums, um, the case studies that are being uh, used in the curriculums. We need to be updating them so that it doesn't become the old. So that's also uh, something that we can talk about, think about. But funding this case study approach is fundamental as we go along, even as part of the ECFS uh, uh, work, uh, where we can quickly build the national level capacities uh, in a short period of time where in a region capacity is very limited for food policy analysis. Um, with that, let me let me say that we also need to be doing a little bit of research and refining on this approach itself 
the social entrepreneurship approach itself how to take this to policy making not just uh, you know as students doing some case studies or researchers some case studies uh, with some limited resources thank you very much for the opportunity thank you very much suresh um, and thanks to you know all the presenters of the first round we're doing very well on time so this is very much appreciated so let us move to the second round of presentations that are focusing on policy research on the impact of COVID-19 pandemic on households, food systems and agriculture. So the first speaker um, for that round or for this round now is Roman Romashkin. He's a deputy director for development of the Eurasian Center for Food Security. He coordinates research on agriculture, economics and food security. And prior to joining ECFS, he was the Assistant Minister for Industry and the Agroindustrial Complex for the Eurasia Economic Commission. Roman will speak about the impact of COVID-19 pandemic on trade and remittances in Eurasia. Roman, the floor is yours. Uh, thank you very much, Frauke. Okay. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, so I have five minutes. Uh, to address the issues of the pandemic impact on regional economies, agri-food trade and remittances from Russia, and my colleagues from IFPRI will consider the other issues of our joint research. Next slide, please. Uh, here uh, we can see the last situation and uh, dynamics of coronavirus spreading among the Eurasian uh, countries. There are no any general features, and the situation and trends are unique for each country, and the worst situation is in Russia and Kyrgyzstan. Next slide, please. Uh, there are many aspects of uh, the COVID-19 impact on national economies and food systems. In general, the pandemic caused uh, declining economic activity and reduction in the demand for energy goods and services such as transportation, tourism, catering industry. Uh, that influenced negatively uh, on energy good prices and led to the depreciation of national currencies. In turn, growth of unemployment and poverty, implications of uh, export restrictions uh, by some countries and disruptions in uh, value chains caused deteriorating food and nutrition security in the region. Next slide, please. Uh, and here we can see that uh, here we can see the IMF estimations of the COVID-19 impact on the main economic indicators. According to these figures, Kyrgyzstan is the most vulnerable to pandemic. However, all countries and region faced to significant depreciation of national currencies in the second uh, quarter of this year. Economic declines and national currencies depreciations impacted negatively on trade values and remittances from Russia. However, primary agriculture has not been affected uh, much. Next slide, please. Uh, concerning the agri-food trade values, um, uh, during the first half of uh, the year, we can see that inter-regional trade continues to grow while uh, import uh, from the rest of the world reduced in all of uh, the countries. And all countries except uh, Tajikistan significantly increased uh, their supply to the regional markets. So regional trade has contributed to mitigation of uh, the adverse effect of the pandemic on food and nutrition security in Eurasia. Next slide, please. 
besides trade, the other important issues are remittances from Russia to Central Asia. Uh, I want to remind about the significant remittance uh, share in GDP for Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan. It's more than 30 and uh, 20% respectively. And there are several important points concerning changes in the remittances since 2013, uh, the year when remittances uh, reached their maximum dollar values. First, uh, amid the ruble depreciation, uh, there were reduction in remittance uh, dollar values, but increase in remittances measured in rubles. And second important issue, is that during the financial crisis of 2015, the reduction of ruble valued remittances was rather moderate compared to the drop of dollar value remittances. And third important point is that there is a clear trend for increasing uh, residence shares in remittances. Next slide, please. And this is the last slide. It demonstrates the uh, COVID-19 impact on remittances compared to the crisis of 2015. Uh, there are three major points. First, uh, current uh, percentage reduction of dollar remittances to Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan is comparable to remittances declined in 2015. Uh, remittances to Uzbekistan is uh, um, more resilient, resilient now compared to the previous crisis uh, situation. Uh, the second point, the non-residents remittances to Uzbekistan and Kyrgyzstan are the most vulnerable compared to the residents uh, remittances to these countries. As for Tajikistan, both residents and non-residents remittances are highly vulnerable, vulnerable to the pandemic crisis. And third point is that the current crisis has led to significant reduction in ruble-valued remittances to Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan. One of the reasons for that could be the restrictions uh, on migration during pandemic and another reason, job losses and reduction of migrants' income. And in conclusion, I'd like to say that current crisis impacts more severely on remittances and uh, merchandise trade than previous one. Uh, however, agriculture and regional agri-food trade are rather resilient and they contribute to mitigation of the adverse effect of the pandemic on food and nutrition security. And as for agriculture, I think that two main factors will negatively impact on its development in the nearest future in the region. These factors are depreciated national currencies and decreasing consumer incomes and demand. And to address these issues, it's important to ensure social safety nets for vulnerable population groups and provide the competitiveness of agricultural production amid high dependency on inputs from the rest of the world. So thank you. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you very much, Roman, for the presentation. Um, I'm going to present the next two presenters together because I understand it's a, a joint presentation. So we have Dr. Kamil John. Akramov. He is a senior research fellow at IFPRI in the Development Strategy and Governance Division. He conducts research on governance, development policy issues using uh, applied econometric analysis. And Dr. Katrina Kusek uh, is a senior research fellow in the Development Strategy and Governance Division at IFPRI as well. 
where she is a theme leader for public investment. She is also an adjunct professor on John Hopkins University. Her research focuses on the linkages between governance, public investment, gender, and economic shocks. Kamiljan and Katrina will speak about the research they've been conducting on policy responses and impact on the COVID-19 pandemic on household welfare, food security, and agriculture in Central Asia. Um, I'm handing over, Kamiljan, the floor is yours. I, I think you're starting. Thank you very much, Frauke. And I'd like to start my uh, presentation by thanking our partners at the World Bank and at the ECFS for a collaboration during the last several years in this area. And I also would like to thank the Minister of Finance of the Russian Federation for their support our work in the region. So next slide, please. And COVID-19 pandemic is a health crisis with multiple and widespread impact on economy and food security. Uh, Central Asian countries are facing the tremendous challenge in this regard. Uh, the latest data from um, national statistical offices and other sources show for first three quarters of 2020, economic growth declined significantly, mainly due to significant declines in industrial and service sectors of the economy. At the same time, agriculture appears to be more resilient to these shocks and continue to show relatively higher growth rates in all four countries. You can see that in this table. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, IFRI is uh, developed the COVID-19 policy response portal, which systematically captures policy responses through multiple channels. And several countries from Eurasia region uh, are included in this portal, uh, including four Central Asian countries, Russia and Armenia. And uh, so I hope that in the coming months and time, uh, researchers, policymakers uh, from the region and elsewhere will use this uh, tool, this uh, database to examine the impact of government policies in a comparative way to better understand which policies are working, which policies are not uh, working well. So post coming to policy responses in Central Asia, uh, this response ranges from uh, restrictions on population movement to lockdowns, from supporting farm activities to easing food imports, from lowering value taxes for socially important uh, products to restricting export of food products. Uh, so, for example, Kazakhstan and more recently Kyrgyzstan introduced export bans and restrictions on several food products, including wheat, wheat flour, and li live animals. There is no evidence if these restrictions helped to keep domestic prices low, but anecdotal evidence suggests that such measures reflected in increased uh, food prices in neighboring uh, food importing countries in the region. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, to better understand the impact of uh, COVID-19 on households, we conducted phone survey in Southern Tajikistan. Uh, we used our baseline survey uh, from 2018, which covered 1,200 households. 
And this survey in this year was conducted with the help Zirkel Analytics Group in Tajikistan uh, from September to October 2020. And we were able to reach about 90% of the households from our baseline survey. And these households have access to different types of plots, including household plots, residential plots, decom farms, and very few households have access to rental plots. Uh, next slide, please. So first uh, message uh, from this uh, survey is actually due to concerns of on food security, households appear to switch from uh, high value crops to uh, food crops, staple food crops like uh, wheat and uh, fodder crops to support livestock. So you can see in this uh, graph is happening in all crop types, household plots, dehkan farms, and presidential plots. Next slide, please. Uh, travel restrictions uh, slightly impacted the availability of inputs, but access to inputs was affected due to higher prices. We can see that with respect to seed, access to seed and seed prices and access to chemicals and chemical fertilizers. So in this uh, slide, you see that uh, about 88% of households had access to seed, but 45% of them mentioned that uh, access to seed was easier this year, but nearly 80% of these households mentioned that seed prices were much higher this year compared to the same season last year. Next slide, please. We can observe uh, very similar situation with access to and prices of chemicals and chemical fertilizers in this region. Next slide, please. Uh, so access to finance information plays an important role in improving productivity and household welfare. There are a lot of evidence on this regard. Unfortunately, access to both uh, finance and information remains as a significant constraint in this region. And moreover, COVID-19 seems worsened the access to finance and information. In this slide, you see that only 10% of households in this survey region and southern part of Tajikistan received some type of financial support or access, had access to credit. Uh, and these people, uh, the rest of the, the households had no access to such support. Uh, next slide, please. Likewise, uh, about 8% of households received agricultural information from formal institutions. About 20% of uh, households received such information from their relatives and friends. So again, in this regard, access to information still remains a problem. COVID-19 worsened the situation and their relatives and friends uh, are the main source of the information, but uh, still, even in this regard, we have very uh, limited access to information, which is very important. At this point, I would like to pass on to Katrina to talk about impact of COVID-19 on household welfare and food security. Thank you very much. Thank you, Kamal John. I will make eight key points. Uh, next slide, please. The first is that COVID-19 has lowered incomes 
for over 40% of households. And this includes both the poor and the less poor. This really raises the question then of which households are most negatively affected. And here we turn to the fact that we have a panel, the 2018 pre-pandemic asset wealth of the household. Um, the x-axis over here on the right is the percentage change in income due to the pandemic. And we plot the distribution for each of these four wealth quartiles. All groups we see, see declines in income on average, but we can see that the worst declines are for the poorest two quartiles of wealth. Um, next slide, please. One reason for declining incomes is unemployment and underemployment. And we find that job loss has affected almost 20% of households. And even those with jobs face numerous workplace challenges. Over a third of households losing jobs lost two or more jobs. And further, those who have a job um, among them, many are still negatively affected by COVID-19. Um, for example, 12% uh, 12 12 report a lot less work, 14% report a little less work, 8% um, uh, report a forced furlough, and over 6% are reporting lower wages. Next slide. Migration was and it remains central to livelihoods despite COVID-19, all right? Uh, the graphic on the left reports the number of household migrants before COVID-19, while the graphic on the right reports the situation in October of 2020. And there has been a very modest rise in the share of households reporting no migrants. Um, so from 51% uh, reporting no migrants to 55%. Um, among these migrants, 8% are women and 92% are men. Um, next slide. About 80% of migrant sending households report reduced remittances and 8% had a return migrant due to COVID-19. So this underscores that the vast majority of households are not observing return uh, migrants. Migration is still pervasive, but those migrants are then sending less home. And in particular, we see virtually no migrants sending more remittances than they did prior to COVID-19. So increased remittances is in no way buffering the negative effects of COVID-19. Um, next slide, please. We also find that COVID-19 has lowered household expenditures, and this is especially for the poor and especially on food. This first chart here shows the change in household expenditures for each of the four quartiles of pre-pandemic wealth. So that is, how has COVID-19 affected household expenditures for the poorest, for the two middle quartiles, and for the richest quartile? On average, we find reduced household expenditures for all four groups. Uh, but the richest two wealth groups are perhaps not surprisingly um, the most likely to have realized increases in expenditures, while the poorest two groups are the most likely to have realized decreased expenditures. We found reductions in a variety of expenditure categories, and the most common category was food, with 28% of households spending less. The next most common expenditure uh, reduction was for transportation, likely due to these restrictions on mobility due to COVID-19, with about 23% reporting a decline in transportation expenditures. And then about 16% also reported reductions in healthcare and education expenditures.
Next slide, please. COVID-19 has also depleted savings as well as asset stocks. This first graphic takes our pre-pandemic asset wealth of households. It divides them into quartiles. And we then strikingly see that over 60% of households across all wealth quartiles used savings to deal with changes in expenditure or income. However, it's, it's slightly more common for the poorest households to use savings compared to less poor households. Turning to assets on the right-hand side, we see a high share of households spending assets in response to COVID-19. This is true across all pre-pandemic wealth quartiles, and we see all quartiles spending at least 30% um, uh, of their asset wealth, um, but for the richest quartile, it's about four, over 40%. Uh, next slide, please. Not surprisingly, given these declines in consumption, diets and dietary diversity declined as well. This is especially true for the poor. Uh, the first graphic considers whether households reduced food consumption, and the poorest reduced consumption slightly more than less poor households. But it's striking, again, that nearly 60% of those in the richest wealth quartile still reduce their consumption. Turning to diet quality, it's clearly the poorest who have suffered the most. About two-thirds of the poorest households reduced consumption of at least one healthy food group due to COVID-19. Um, in contrast, for the richest quartile, less than 45% reduced consumption of healthy foods. Uh, next slide, please. On one positive note, we find no evidence that women's participation in intra-household decision-making has further deteriorated due to COVID-19. This is not to say it's at a high, high base, but it's not further deteriorated. Across all four wealth quartiles, at least 40% of households reported that women's degree of involvement in decision-making about spending income actually increased compared to a year ago. And we see a similar picture for decisions about children. To conclude, COVID-19 has brought severe challenges to Tajikistan. These demand effective policy solutions to help the country recover. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Kamaljan and Katrina. This is a really interesting um, presentation. I forgot to mention earlier to all who are listening in, um, you know, you can keep uh, the questions coming. You know, we have, as all presenters have kept their time, we have um, sufficient time for questions and answers. Um, so please type your questions in and we're trying to address as many um, as we can. Um, let me get started on one question that we received. Um, could this food policy research and capacity development system be extended to South Asian countries like Bangladesh? Um, maybe that's a question for Daryl and Suresh um, to comment on. Okay, I can come in, uh, Frake. This is Suresh uh, talking. Um, definitely, uh, that's a possibility. And uh, in fact, uh, some of the, in my own work in South Asia, working with the countries like Nepal, Sri Lanka, Bhutan, and in, even in India and Bangladesh, uh, we have been using some of the case studies that are emerging from Central Asia uh, as well through this program, ACFS, uh, IFPRI, World Bank program. So I should say that that uh, it's not just uh, the Central Asian you know, countries benefiting from this effort and, and, and this program, uh, that we are also having um, you know, cross-country, South-South learning kind of uh, uh, things happening. 
and definitely uh, professor shobha mentioned about africa and 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 also the, um, uh, it was mentioned that we can take this effort to africa and um, my own work in africa in capacity strengthening gives a lot of opportunities for this as well to learn from from central asian countries uh, so the answer is uh, positive confirmative yes <laughs> thank you to, thank you daryl uh, you want to add yeah Yes, uh, to I, I agree fully with what Suresh has said. Uh, in addition, I'd mentioned that the case studies that were gathered before uh, ECFS started, Cornell University provides them free of charge to everyone, and a number of them deal with Southern and Eastern Asia. And I, I would love to see a great deal more coming out of that region. Thank you very much, Daryl. Um, we have a second question here from Alan Yoshida. It's um, should water quality be a near-term goal as well? I guess in addition to um, food security, I'm not entirely sure to whom to pose that question. So whoever wishes to make a comment on that, I mean, should the research also um, focus more on water quality related to food security aspects? I guess maybe um, I don't know, Katrina, um, Kamil John, you wanna. Kamal John, you want to take that? Please go ahead, then I can add some. I, I think I'll pass on this for one second. <laughs> Sorry, I've... Okay, and yeah, I, I agree with that. Uh, this uh, notion that water quality is very important. It's especially important for Central Asia, where especially rural people have uh, very poor access to uh, higher quality drinking water. And uh, in our research, actually, Katrina mentioned uh, this uh, wells quartiles. And one of the uh, factors we considered in the identifying those uh, quartiles, actually one important factor is the access to high quality drinking water. And uh, yeah, I fully agree with that uh, question and we should work more on this. I forgot that's right. That was in the uh, asset index. You're right, Kamal John. Thanks. Yeah, thanks. I think that's very helpful um, to know. I mean, that you've already considered that in, in your studies. Um, let me see if we have, let me um, ask Katrina, let me ask you another question here. I mean, you have shown in your presentation you know, that there is quite an um, effect uh, on, you know, consumption patterns and probably with that also dietary diversity um, in Tajikistan from, you know, the results of your phone survey. How, so how concerned should we be about these impacts? I mean, are there, is there additional data that needs to be um, collected, assessed and to further, you know, deepen, uh, you know, these, these, you know, looking at these impacts or, you know, what is, is the, the takeaway from your research? On this. Thanks for that question, Frauka. Um, yes, I, I feel like what we have seen so far is really a small indicator that there are maybe problems. Uh, it re reduced consumption, reduced diet quality. I, I think that uh, going forward, it would be important to continue to monitor and assess the situation, preferably trying to get better data on this, right? If we want to really and truly look at the consumption impacts of a pandemic or any shock, we really need things like 24-hour recalls of consumption. We need to know consumption by family member because often a given amount of food is, is shared in a particular way in the household um, that we can't 
see in the aggregate. We can't um, observe how much food is going to children, how much food is going to pregnant women. So understanding the intra-household allocation of food and a potentially changes in that allocation due to the pandemic is really important. And then just getting that finer grained, higher quality data to help us assess the situation um, is, is going to be very critical uh, uh, going forward. Those data are challenging to collect right in, in normal times. And, and certainly through a phone survey, which we carried out, um, they're especially challenging. But I really feel like more work is needed in this area um, to understand um, exactly what's happening to the intra-household consumption patterns over time. Thank you. Thank you very much, Katrina. Um, let, let's stick with uh, your, your survey and your work there in Tajikistan. And Kamiljon, maybe a question to you. Um, you know, did you see in your, um, the, your work on Tajikistan, if there was any evidence that these, some of these um, trade measures that have been taken by Central Asian countries, now like the export bans, um, you know, had um, the effect that they were intended to, to maintain domestic food prices? Um, uh, and, you know, the effects on food security in the region or what would be, you know, measures that countries could take um, on these con consumer protection or assuring that food prices are not increasing. Thank you, Frauke. And this is a very important uh, issue. And uh, as uh, other speakers already mentioned, that sort of trade restrictions are part of the policy tool governments use in this kind of crisis situation. And in Central Asia, unfortunately, uh, some countries started with export ban, then they changed it to export quotas. And uh, Kazakhstan with the wheat and uh, other products and the live animal export ban is still in place. And Kyrgyzstan recently uh, introduced it to this policy just last month. And uh, Tajikistan also uses that uh, trade restrictions, but Tajikistan is more importing country, so it makes uh, uh, not much effect on the neighbors. But the uh, policies of Kazakhstan and to some extent Kyrgyzstan may have impact on other countries. Uh, and from this survey, actually, uh, one very important takeaway message, actually, we saw that uh, households were switching back to food crops staple food crops. Uh, actually, in our 2018 survey, we saw that actually the smallholder households were focusing more on high-value crops, vegetables, melons, and so on, and selling that to the market and trying to export to other countries. But in this time, many of these households are switching back to staple food crops. And I think the food, uh, food security concern was there. And uh, as you all know, actually in 1990s, when this trade stopped in this region, uh, many countries, uh, many households, they switched back to, uh, switched to growing staple food crops, actually. This is happening again, not in that scale, but it's actually, I think this is very important to take into account for World Bank uh, and uh, it's more importantly to, uh, policymakers in the region. But at the same time, in those uh, countries which introduced this export bans, actually, they didn't see effect. Uh, producers on the on these countries are actually complaining about this uh, because that's affecting their income. Thank you. 
Yes, thank you very much. I mean, these are really interesting findings. We're actually um, currently in the process of starting to think about, you know, an engagement in for Tajikistan. So these are really also, you know, helpful help information to think what what can be done and how can one help, you know, to kind of, you know, you know, live in the easy situation, but also in a, in a sustainable and longer term manner. This is really helpful. Um, let me ask a question to Roman. Um, you know, did you also look at the, you know, decline in remittances, you know, from, from Russia due to shortage in, in migrant labors in agriculture and, and f- the food industry during the pandemic? Um, you know, there, you know, the, we've heard a lot. Actually, I was surprised to see from Tajikistan that the, the, um, the migrant numbers doesn't, don't seem to have gone down as much as I would have assumed. But you know what? What have you seen in, in when you were looking at um, your your research? In what countries are the major suppliers of the migrant labor into agriculture in Russia? And you know what effects happened and in the current year? Uh, can, can you hear me? Yes, we hear you. Okay, now it's okay. Thank you, Frauke, for these questions. It's very important questions, but uh, unfortunately, we don't, uh, during our research uh, up to now, we don't go into detail because of the uh, 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 because of the absence of the information, just such information according to particular activity and uh, migrants' labor uh, involved in particular activity, it's uh, not uh, available for us. But so I can't speak about the agriculture and food industry, but as for particularly as for agriculture, uh, so there was uh, an information from the Ministry of Agriculture about the um, uh, additional need in the seasonal labor in Russian agriculture. So this estimation, uh, this estimates is about uh, twenty three thousand people uh, additional um, seasonal workers which required for Russian agriculture and uh, the uh, supply of this labor force were restricted uh, because of the um, pandemic and uh, limits on traveling for migrants. So, but, but we have such figure. It's, uh, I think that's uh, very general figure, but uh, it's 23,000 people. Uh, that's the shortages in uh, migrant labor for Russian agriculture. And we know about the uh, average uh, one remittance amount in uh, the second quarter of this year. So multiplication of these figures can uh, give us the uh, representation about the um, uh, input of uh, migrant labor in uh, Russian agriculture that was restricted because of the pandemic. So it's not uh, a huge figure. It's about five million uh, United States dollars. It's very small concerning the total uh, amount of transfers of, of remittances from Russia to the Central Asia. Uh, and as for the uh, countries of uh, origin of uh, labor migrants uh, for agriculture, also it's difficult to judge uh, how many um, uh, migrants uh, came from each country. But uh, again, we have only general figures 
concerning the people, the migrants that involved in agriculture, in Russian agriculture. These are people mostly from the uh, former Soviet Union countries, uh, from China, Vietnam, and uh, North uh, Korea. But again, we don't have any exact numbers of how many people from each country came to Russia as seasonal workers in agriculture. Maybe in the future we, we, we could get uh, such information or can use any estimation from any survey if we will uh, have them. Thank you. Yes, thank you very much, Roman. I think it's also important probably on the other side to kind of see as in the Tajikistan survey, uh, what happens on the, these, the countries where the migrant laborers are coming from. And also, I think that could be something jointly to, to look at going forward. Let me move to the, the we have um, another question coming in um, from Nigeria, actually from Unity. Um, for local producers who depend on Europe and Asia for some of the raw materials, how do we cushion the gap in the market forces in Europe and Asia? There is a, seems to be a wide difference in prices knowing fully well uh, that raw materials make up 90 to 95% price at, at packaging. I'm not entirely sure to whom we should um, address that question. Um, so that is, is, is maybe um, also to, to Katrina and Kamil John, is there something that you've been looking at uh, or that IFPRI has been doing on, on looking at that for, um, you know, Africa um, in terms of, you know, other, um, of bringing, you know, you know, the raw materials back to the, the markets in Europe and Asia. I haven't done macro uh, work on raw materials. Uh, Kamal John, I don't know if you can speak to, um, to this point about um, the more macro aspects of this. No, actually, uh, yeah, I've felt that done uh, not much on this actually, but uh, uh, I can tell that in our 2018 survey, uh, which was the baseline for our phone survey this year, and we saw that actually I can't connect this with uh, what's happening in Africa or, but uh, in Central Asia, more specifically in Tajikistan, value chains are very uh, weak and that starts from the uh, field actually because uh, farmers have no uh, access to better information, to better logistics and so on. And that makes uh, impact along the, the different stages of the value chain. So yeah, I'm not sure if this answers the question. And, but again, yeah, we will uh, keep that in mind for future research. Thank you very much. Um, there's a, another question um, that is more Russia focused uh, to the ECFS. Um, so maybe um, Roman can talk about that or answer that. What can you say about the dynamics of food security after COVID-19 in terms of its drivers for you know, policy and household capacity building? Is there some dynamics you can see in Russia that are happening already now? Uh, yes. I, I assume it's building, building back up. 
Thank you for these questions. We also, in uh, our center, in the region center, we try to conduct a system for monitoring food security. But unfortunately, this system is not uh, based on ad hoc uh, monitoring, just uh, we uh, monitor food security after the period uh, passed and we have uh, official statistical data. But uh, um, uh, as for um, uh, qualitative analysis of food security issues, I think, uh, as I've said in my presentation, two important factors will play a key role. First, this is uh, appreciated national currencies, which significantly influence on agriculture on input, because agriculture of uh, as Russia, so as for as a Central Asian country, depends uh, significantly on uh, inputs from the rest of the world imported, inputs from the rest of the world. So depreciation of national currency uh, will significantly uh, impede the uh, input supply apply to agricultural sector. And the second important factor is uh, consumer demand, reduction in consumer demand and consumer incomes. Uh, that's a very uh, uh, significant meaning for food security in terms of trade, because it's, it could reduce the demand for uh, uh, agricultural exports that uh, will significantly influence uh, the poorest uh, household in Central Asia. And so is the consumer, because consumer can buy a list, um, uh, less amount, less pro uh, amount of, of products. So these are two main important factors and they influence significantly on dynamics of food security, uh, food and nutrition security in the Eurasian uh, region. And I think it's important, very important from the perspective of uh, government policy for policymakers to ensure the social safety net for poorest people in the region and to provide some program of financial support of agricultural producers to um, uh, provide the competitiveness of uh, agricultural sector in uh, amid uh, the uh, in conditions of uh, high dependency on inputs from the rest of the world. I guess uh, somehow I answered the question. Thank you. Thank you very much, Roman. Let us um, close with one last question to Suresh. Um, you know, the, 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 this presentation today showed the um, collaboration between IFRI, um, the EFCS and the World Bank. Um, is there, you know, what would be a way to also strengthen other local think tanks in Central Asian countries through this case study approach, um, are there plans to extend this institutional capacity support um, to think tanks in the region? Uh, thank you, Farka. I, I, I definitely think so. In fact, uh, that, is the, that is the message of my presentation as well, that uh, individual capacities of uh, researchers are fine. We are doing very well with it. And, and how do we uh, get this capacity that we have built already into more like institutional capacity so that they can be uh, playing the role in the policy debate and policy dialogue and, uh, and even be more impactful in the countries as key players in the policy. That requires a little bit of uh, additional effort in terms of uh, institutional capacity, in terms of working with the think tanks locally, which we are already doing, but maybe we should, we should be connecting the dots there 
uh, in more 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 uh, um, you know organized manner so that the institutions can also flourish in those countries uh, maybe atavasat may 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 had because he also had this kind of thinking uh, as well um, thank you atavas you want to add one sentence Uh, thank you very much. Uh, yes, I, I fully agree with Suresh. And one way uh, to kind of continue building these capacities is also generating um, a way to share the knowledge uh, between these universities. And um, some of this uh, research that is being produced um, over time um, makes um, uh, basically uh, generates ideas that uh, researchers from other universities basically take on and build on these ideas and and kind of extend the research um, in their universities and we, we have seen a lot of examples of that so so indeed I mean there is a lot of room to extend it and to to kind of build this knowledge um, also at the local level not only at the regional level thank you Artavas I'll give the floor as we're reaching the end of, of this webinar I give the floor shortly to Stephen our director of sustainable development for a few closing remarks before I will close thank over to you Stephen thank you Frauke thank you everyone obviously again to Joe and, and the team from IFPRI and of course most importantly to our colleagues at the European Eurasian Center for uh, food security uh, listen just a few quick remarks because it was a rich discussion Uh, I think you know much of the discussion was initially on the how to how to use case studies and and, and how they were uh, organized and I think that's really important because uh, you know the tools are critical uh, for credible policy influence and, and policy advice. Um, I think another thing that really comes through is how important it is to use these tools not just in response to specific crises but to actually get ahead of crises. Uh, the new normal in the world in a context of climate change, pandemics, economic integration which, and political integration, which also brings increasing economic and political volatility transmission, is that you know, instability is the new normal in many ways. And the real challenge, as, as many people highlighted, is how do we insulate the those most vulnerable to impacts on the food system and, and food access and food security? It was interesting to see even some of the issues of dietary switching, which of course are raised tremendous concerns in terms of nutrition. So uh, I think really in many ways, the objective is, is to ensure a food system that's robust to this type of broader contextual uh, instability. Um, and then I, I think the other thing that really comes through very importantly, and I think this, this work is really contributing to so importantly, is how critical it is to have effective monitoring to allow targeted responses because without that policymakers of course jump often to broader brush type responses which have tremendous secondary third round effects in terms of either incentives for the food system's performance overall or in, in terms of, of, of distorting access to food on a broader basis. So having effective monitoring of the kind that we saw today that allows to really become more granular in terms of who is being impacted, how they're being impacted, so that very targeted type policy responses can, can, can be brought to bear and recommended is so critical. And clearly the work that we're seeing happening goes exactly in that direction. So I just really want to commend uh, the researchers, the analysts, 
and others who are involved in this work for, for the quality of the work you're doing, which obviously has tremendous implications for the Eurasian region, but also as something that we as, as a partner of the, uh, with all of you, with IFPRI, uh, want to bring to a, a broader global uh, audience. So thank you for that. Thanks a lot, Stephen. And you know, we're kind of filled up our time. So thanks a lot to everybody who tuned in. It was a pleasure. Um, and thanks a lot to the speakers and presenters for all of your interesting presentations and food for thought. So I think, you know, in closing saying this is to be continued, you know, we want to see more of, of these efforts and events and capacity building activities for the Eurasia region. Thanks again to IFPRI for hosting the event and have a good day and evening everyone. Thanks for tuning in.